Good morning, everyone. Where did we come from? Who are we? Where are we going? There are three haunting existential questions, um, which were an inscription on a painting by the um, French um, impressionistic painter Paul Gauguin. Interesting question, so go to the heart of the matter. Where did we come from? Who are we? Where are we going? Mm -hmm. So that's a good lead-in to uh, this talk and to give this talk a title, um, Existential Zen. Mm -hmm. um, bit of background. Uh, Many um, scholars have made, have written papers and PhD theses on the, on, um, the comparison of um, existentialism to Buddhism and Zen in particular, and in particular the work of um, Martin Heidegger, um, 20th century German philosopher, existentialist philosopher and, and Zen Buddhism. In fact, uh, one of my uh, close friends and colleagues, um, Linda Kong, a psychologist um, did her um, PhD thesis on that very matter, and she's a therapist and a Buddhist teacher. Um, just going back to my university days, I started off doing a degree in philosophy, and it was very much a, a, a personal journey um, as much as a, an academic pursuit in that, um, and I can make more sense of it now, um, what I was trying to do, but I was trying to find something through philosophy that was irrefutable and certain, like a, a base that you could, you could build on that would be solid, and then you could work out your values and your direction in life and you know, so on from there. And uh, I had this approach to it that I was not going to, I was ruthless in the way that I examined everything, all the different philosophies. And I had this vow to myself that I'm not going to just attach myself to some kind of theory or ideology just because it brings some kind of sense of comfort. Oh yeah, that will do. Um, that's, what, that's what I can believe in, that's what I can have faith in. And um, I wouldn't allow myself to do that. And, um, and so the, the result of all of that was that um, uh, I didn't find anything that was certain. <laughs> and I was drawn to um, existentialism and I, and I specialised in, in studying that as I went further on with a very good teacher. And one of the... One of the it's often think sometimes when you read books and there's a turning point and you go, ah... And, and it's a turning point in your life in some way. And I've, I've mentioned it in previous Dharma talks, but um, uh, there was a point where I was reading a book by Alan Watts called The Wisdom of Insecurity. And in the book he said that, that Western philosophy and religion, most religions, are trying to find or establish a solid foundation on which to build things. <clears throat> and it referred to that that um, Christian biblical saying, I don't know if it's from the Bible or it's in a song, 
um, build your house upon the rock and not upon the sand, right, solid foundation. And Alan Watts was saying, but there is no solid foundation. Everything is in flux, everything is insubstantial, everything is transient. So it's pointless trying to build a house on a foundation that isn't solid. And at that point I went, ah, right? And all of my angsting over philosophy and trying to find something certain just dropped away. And I felt quite okay with that, about there being no solid foundation. So it's not um, difficult to see how I um, evolved from there into Zen practice. Uh But it's like I had to go through that philosophical training to get to that point. So I don't want to, I don't want this to be um, particularly um, philosophical um, Dharma talk, Um, but just to recognise that there is a a connection between existentialism and Zen Buddhism. But what is more relevant is um, looking at how existential therapy is runs parallel with what we do or can inform what we do because the, the basis of it is so so similar because philosophy is just about it's abstract. But existential therapy is something closer to what Buddhism is. It's about addressing human suffering, you know, and transforming human suffering. And my guide is a very well-known and loved um, psychotherapist, um, uh, Erwin Yellum, who is a San Francisco-based psychiatrist and psychotherapist. And he not only is a very experienced and wise therapist, he's also a very good writer. And if you're interested in reading any of his books, like Love's Executioner, which is a series of essays about people he's worked with, or a very good um, novel called The Schopenhauer Cure, which is really interesting. It's both very wise and very got a lot of depth to it and also very funny and very contemporary. But you can learn things from, from reading these books. So drawing on existentialism... Um, Irvin Yalom takes the view that a lot of the people that he sees or the way he understands it are not necessarily suffering from childhood trauma or things unique things that have happened to them in their life but all human beings have what he would refer to as existential anxiety and that's a fear of death you know, mortality, um, um, fear of freedom and responsibility around that, fear of aloneness, and um, trying to find meaning in what would appear to be a meaningless universe. Mm-hmm. Now, existential anxiety, to put it in Buddhist psychology framework, is really not too dissimilar to what we see the cause of suffering being. You know, the cause of suffering being essentially that, that spinning wheel of you know, the, the dog chasing its tail of grasping and aversion you know, and getting, trying to find something that it can't get, get a grip on mm-hmm. and, and constantly wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting and never being fulfilled. Dissatisfaction, 
that's anxiety. All, all of that is describing existential anxiety. It's like there's no, there's no, uh, it, it's a desperate um, clinging on to something, you know, to get some satisfaction out of, and there's nothing to cling on to. And so we create even more anxiety. And um, he, he mentions this uh, in the beginning of his book, this interesting um, uh, large group therapy, I suppose it is, of we had three or four hundred people in a room, they're all strangers, and they're not people who are um, so-called failing in their life, they're people in suits and people with jobs and professional people, and they all pair up with strangers, and their task is to keep asking the other person over and over again, not just once, but over and over again, what is it that you want? What is it that you want? What is it that you want? And it only took about 10 minutes to take the lid off all the suffering that was underneath with that question. And what poured out from people, you know, is, um, uh, I want the mother I never had. Do you know, I want the childhood I never had? I want my loved one back who died. All of this, all of this longing and wanting just underneath the surface. And that's, that's the human condition. There's a lot of parallels with our own practice there. Now if we go through them um, one by one to get a little bit more intimate with each of those things. Um, there's the inevitability of death that for each of us and those that we love. And I'll go through each of them, then we'll come back to them in his words. The inevitability of death for each of us and those we love. Secondly, the freedom of choice to make our lives as we, as we will. Three, our ultimate aloneness. And four, the absence of any meaning or sense to life. Now, that sounds very bleak. Mm -hmm. Just like it sounds rather bleak in Buddhism to say the three marks of existence are suffering, impermanence and insubstantiality. Mm -hmm. But, like in Zen practice or Buddhist practice, we fully embrace those things and something transforms. We run away from those realities of life and we suffer. So the same, we're on the same path here. To take the first one, the inevitability of death, of our own death and our loved ones, um, he outlines two ways in which we try to um, avoid or evade that inevitability. And one is through thinking that we're special. It's kind of like a, a sort of a, um, a strong sense of denial that we can have as human beings that somehow we're bulletproof, you know, and, and death is only going to happen to other people and not to me. Truly, people are that deluded. Mm -hmm. Or if I die, it's not going to be in my lifetime. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, we can all intellectually, we all intellectually know that we're going to die. Um, but, but to be really um, in touch with that fact is something else. And it takes years and years of practice to actually break through all of that denial 
and to recognise, yeah, I'm going to die, I won't be here. And the other way he identifies that people escape or attempt to escape that fact that we're going to die is that we're going to have some kind of ultimate rescuer, like a god, you know, and we're not really going to die, um, we'll live ever after. And that's a way of people trying to appease that basic existential kind of anxiety. And um, existential therapy and also Zen practice is about recognising those escape routes and not feeding them, not, not going down that, that sense of false security, but being ever more willing in every moment to recognise that we're going to die. Mm-hmm. And that by facing that truth, what we find is that by facing the fact that our life is, is, is transient and it's not going to last forever, then it enriches our life. We, we appreciate the preciousness of the present moment when we're clearly in touch with the fact that we're going to die. Mm-hmm. And looking around the room, maybe 20 years if I'm lucky, 20 years, 10 years, 30 years, no one's over 100 years. Mm-hmm. We, won't be, we won't be here, in, none of us will probably be here in about the next 50 years, 60 years. Mm-hmm. And the fact of that can either depress us or to lead into my next issue about freedom of choice. It's how we, how we choose to deal with that fact. It could lead us down into, into despair or it can lead us into rejoicing with the life, the precious life we've been given right now. The second one, the freedom of choice to make our own lives as we will. Um, the, uh, another existentialist thinker Jean-Paul Sartre in talking about this said that the, um, the fact that human beings have choice and freedom is a kind of curse uh-huh. because it means that we, we are responsible for our own lives mm-hmm. and you see, you see the story of this about choice and freedom and its consequences in religious themes if you go right back to the Adam and Eve story doesn't matter whether it's true or it's mythology. Um, but you can have anything to eat in the garden, but don't you touch those apples. Mm-hmm. Eve eats the apple and there's a whole lot of consequences that follow on from that choice. Right? That's a rather cruel story, in a way, because it's like if you had a child, you know, with different lollies in front of you, you can have the green lollies and the blue lollies, but don't you eat the red lollies? You can imagine a child going, do you know, they look really interesting, don't they? Uh-huh. Gee, it must be special, the red lolly. I'll have one of those. Anyway, it's a kind of cruel story, but we understand the, the meaning of it. But, there are, but there, are, there are consequences that follow from responsibility. And um, for those of us who, who work in counselling and, and psychotherapy, um, we, we know that one of our primary tasks is that the person who comes in, despite the cards they might have been dealt with in their life, that our task is to get them to see that they have some responsibility and choice in terms of what they do 
with their life, you know, that they, that they can become the author of their own life. And um, what, is, what is counter to that um, is the sense of um, uh, blame and everything that goes along with blame that leads us to not accepting responsibility for our own choices in life. So, so with blame goes resentment and even revenge. A whole lot of things can emerge out of not taking responsibility for our own decisions and the consequences for them. And it's one of the things that parents try to cultivate in, in children as they're growing up, um, to, to uh, inculcate that idea that they are, they're responsible for their own actions. But there's many ways in which we, um, we avoid it. And um, some, some colleagues of mine, um, a psychiatrist in particular, um, who has written a book on this about how in contemporary culture, you know, with the people who come in and see him as patients, there's this pattern towards um, uh, finding reasons why we behave we do, which, are, which um, are outside of our sense of responsibility. It's like it's the culture is responsible, or my family is responsible, or my childhood is responsible. Um, my, my genes are responsible for the way I am. Now, all of that may have an influence on us, um, but he's pointing to this, this trend that happens, that we're finding ways to rationalise where we're not responsible. Mm -hmm. One of my clients said the other day, half-jokingly, my brain made me do it. <laughs> we'll find, you know, we'll find anything except recognising our own responsibility and authoring of our own life often. Because as Sartre said, it's kind of like with accepting freedom, you know, which, was, which so many, uh, a Western culture has fought so hard for, you know, the freedoms we have in a place like Australia, with that freedom comes responsibility and the fact that we, we, we can and we do make choices. Mm. So again, just like with death, when we fully accept our mortality and we don't try to skirt around it to, to, to create some kind of false security, when we come into really fully accepting our own responsibility, something, something shifts in our life. Um, what may have appeared as a burden actually becomes something which liberates us. Mm -hmm. The third point of existentialism is that we're ultimately alone. Mm -hmm. um, I remember Robert Aitken Roshi, my, one of my teachers, quite frequently used to say in his Dharma talks, um, we are born alone, we die alone, and we realise our true nature alone. Mm -hmm. And he is also fond of quoting the story about the baby Buddha, the myth about the baby Buddha is when he was born, very precocious child that he was. He said, above the heavens, below the heavens, only, uh, only I alone and sacred. Mm -hmm recognising this sense that, that we do experience ourselves as being alone in life. And as much as we want to say that there is no self, in a sense the fact that we are alone 
I'm in my body, you're in your body, right? You experience things through your brain and I experience things through my brain. In a sense, there is a, there is a form of a self there, even though we, there's no ultimate permanence to it. But there is a cluster of something organised, some energy organised, and its experience is to be alone. <laughs> and what are the ways in which we um, deal with our aloneness? You know, how, how do we evade that fact, like we evade death? One of the ways that people become alone is that they've cut themselves off from themselves. And like, for instance, you see many people um, that I deal with in, in my practice, and I'm sure other people do, people who are cut off from their emotions or cut off from particular emotions, positive ones like love and joy or negative ones like anger and sadness and fear, but they're cut off from them. So there's a, there's a loneliness comes kind of within yourself when you are cut off from your full experience as a human being and you deny aspects of it. And it'll make you lonely inwardly if you do that and that's why just being with with our emotional experience in in meditation practice and everyday life is important it's not just therapy it's also zen practice it's getting through aversion usually and um, it, it's important that we that that's included in the practice that we do The other way that people often deal with the fact that we're alone in the world is through the way that they relate to others. And um, people um, will want to fuse, what we call fuse with other people in their life, like to, to think that themselves and another person is one, we're all one. Yamada Roshi used to call this kind of oneness pernicious oneness. He was very, he constantly was, was on to it. This, this idea, oh, we're all one, this Buddhist idea, we're all one. Actually, we're all differentiated as well. Mm -hmm. And there's many and many a, a koan and, and Zen poem which highlights that there is differentiation and there is oneness at the same time. Mm -hmm. We are different. Mm -hmm. We are alone. But the way when some people who can't tolerate being alone fuse themselves with others, you know, it's like, and uh, it's a way of not standing on your own two feet. You know, if, if, I, if I fuse myself with another person, then it, it'll give me this false sense of, of security that I'm never alone. So it's like someone who can... Um, they can never actually be alone. They've always got to be talking, they've always got to be socialising, they've always got to be with someone else. They're terrified of being alone. Mm -hmm. And so their way of, of, of dealing with that fear is to fill themselves up all the time. Then you get other people who do the reverse, who um, cut themselves off and become like islands, you know, and, and they're, they're kind of comfortable in their aloneness in so much as that they have an aversion to other people. Mm -hmm. And that can be a trap as well. Through Zen practice, there's many things come out of Zen practice. 
but to just point to an obvious one of doing sitting meditation and doing sitting meditation as we are, hour after hour and day after day, we're all sitting alone. We're all together, but it's very clear from doing Sasin practice that you're alone. We don't socialise, you know, we don't have much eye contact, no talking. Our experience for most of this time here is just sitting, experiencing what it is to be alone. And that's one of the fruits that comes out of Zen practice because, again, like with death, um, embracing death, not avoiding it, embracing responsibility, not avoiding it, embracing aloneness, something transforms, Mm -hmm. becomes joyous. And there is a one Zen teacher when asked a question by a monk, what is a matter of special wonder? And he replied, sitting alone on Dayu Peak, just sitting alone on top of that mountain, that's joyous. If we really embrace our aloneness, it's not scary anymore. Mm-hmm. And if we're able to embrace that aloneness, paradoxically, we will relate better. Um, I could do a whole series of talks on this being a relationship counsellor. Um, about how we, we fuse into relationships as a way of escaping aloneness. Irvin Yellum uses an interesting set of words here that he challenges. We usually talk about falling in love, right? And falling in love kind of implies this immersion in the other. But he says, what would be a better term, based on this sense of recognising our own aloneness in the world, It's not falling in love, but standing in love. Mm -hmm. How interesting. Mm -hmm. Standing in love. In other words, I I can stand on my own two feet and I can be in my own body and my own experience and my own aloneness and from there I can connect with you. Um, The um, couple therapist David Snarch, who I, I like a lot, he, he talked about fused relationships being like an A with people, like a, a letter A with people leaning one on one another. He said, what a healthy relationship is an H. People standing on their own two feet and they're connected. That's a solid relationship. And that comes when you're comfortable with being alone or not escaping into aloneness to escape from connectedness as well. Then the last one, um, the absence of any meaning or sense to life. You could say that, to go back to what I was saying before about when I was a philosophy student looking for certainty, trying to find certainty in words and theories and so on and not finding it. The reason why we're all caught up in that in one degree or another, whether it's philosophical certainty or whatever it might be, religious, spiritual, ideological, political, moral, um, if we could be certain about something, it would give us a sense of mastery over things and we would like to have a sense of mastery or control 
over things. Um, but life just what, is what it is. When we look at it at life through the lens of emptiness, in other words, looking at it through this non-conceptual lens before we bring language into it, it doesn't have any meaning. It's just lights and sounds and things that are coming and going. Um, but it's like we, we can't handle that. We've got to project some kind of big human, great, profound human meaning onto what it all is. And we, we chase a meaning, you know, that we never find. And that, and that creates, that's driven by anxiety. But what if we were to just accept the fact that it's meaningless? Now, I don't mean that in a depressed way. It's just that it's, it's just sensations coming and going, right, randomly, right? organised, um, but random as well. What's the problem? Mm -hmm. What is the problem if that is the way it is? Mm -hmm. We could either be despairing in it because we think we've got no control, or again, we could embrace it. Mm -hmm. That's why I gave a talk a few Tuesdays ago saying Dharma talks are meaningless, <laughs> ultimately. Right? Well, just words. Uh -huh. More to the point, life is, life is meaningless in a sense. <clears throat> but um, it's like when people try to make happiness a goal and, and they chase it, they never find it because happiness is a byproduct of what we do in life. And the same with meaning. If you chase after meaning, you will never find meaning. But meaningfulness, as we use that as a word, is a byproduct of engaging in our life. We do find things meaningful. Helping other people is meaningful. Doing a session is meaningful. Being a marriage is meaningful. Going to work is meaningful. But it's a byproduct of what we do. And it seems to come out of connectedness, as far as I can see. So, again, as we practice our sin, and we don't keep entertaining fanciful thoughts and feeding fanciful thoughts and staying in, our, in the word factory in our brain, mm -hmm, if we drop out of that into just sensory experience and come and going, we don't need to find a meaning in it. We don't need to, to search for a meaning. And this is true of me and it's true of many other people who've practiced meditation for a long time, is, is that the whole idea of um, even asking the question, um, does God exist or not? You know, it's like, there's no need to ask the question. That's what, that's what occurs. I mean, some people, you know, want to argue and put the whole their life energy into to rationalising why God exists. And then there's other people who want to try and deny it and be atheists and so on. But if you've meditated long, so it's like, why bother? What's all the fuss about? The, 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 the idea of trying to deny a meaning in it or find a meaning in it just doesn't, just doesn't, there's no need to ask the question. It just drops away. Mm -hmm because there's nothing that we're chasing outside of the present moment. Now, to, um, to end this, this talk in terms of how we actually apply this in our lives as well, um, many of us here um, 
are people who um, have been in helping professions, are in helping professions, about to embark on a career in a, in a helping profession. And how does this all apply? And it's not just I want to talk about people who professionally um, work in a helping profession. Um, we're all bodhisattvas. Mm -hmm. And it's the work of a bodhisattva you know, to alleviate suffering wherever you come across it. So I've coined these terms professional bodhisattvas and lay bodhisattvas. Right? They were all bodhisattvas. Now, I was loath to bring up those terms because it might bring a, a sense of hierarchy in it that the professional <laughs> helpers are better than the lay ones. So I'm putting the lay ones on the top. Like the, the, the lay helpers are on the top of the hierarchy and the professional ones are actually down below because we're very immersed and we do it for money. Mm -hmm. right? Whereas the lay practitioners, they, they just do it out of love, right? So the lay people are on the top and we're down below. But whether we do it professionally, you know, or whether just in our everyday life there's a chance to be a bodhisattva and alleviate suffering where we might find it, that, that's the application of our, our practice. Don't, don't forget that. And where all this is relevant, to the degree that you're awake to your mortality, to the degree that you're awake that you're responsible for the decisions you make in your life and the consequences that fall from them, the fact that you're awake to your ultimate aloneness in life and awake to the fact that there's no meaning that you have to find, then if you embody that, you'll help other people without trying to help them too, too seriously, too, try too hard. Just by embodying that, you'll help other people. And, and in the conversations or the interactions you have with people, whether it's professionally or as a layperson, you won't feed other people's delusions. You, might, you can be compassionate to them but you won't feed their delusions. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's true helping, mm -hmm. rather than giving false comfort. And whether we're a professional bodhisattva or a lay bodhisattva, we bring wisdom and compassion to what we do. Because, like coming back to being a therapist, one of the skills of being a therapist is to be an observer to someone and at the same time to be connected to them and to understand their suffering and share their humanity, we play both those roles. Wisdom gives us a capacity to be an observer and compassion gives us the capacity to be connected with the shared humanity and we need both. And as we go about our everyday lives, um, if that's what we bring to alleviating the suffering of others, well, that's a wonderful thing. <laughs>